Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also, like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more, and I also love getting under the covers with my authors. So let's get to it. Hey, listeners, welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast. Today, I'm visiting with Renee Winchester. She's the author of the novel Outbound Train. Bestselling author Michael Moore says, Renee Winchester writes about the people of the hard scrabble South with compassion and conviction. Her debut novel, Outbound Train, is an inspiring story of three generations of women who not only seek to survive a life of poverty in Appalachia, but also dare to dream. With pitch-perfect dialogue and believable characters, Winchester has crafted a story that will make readers stand up and cheer. A New York Times bestselling author, Julie Cantrell, calls the book a powerful tale of heartache and healing delivered with the skills of a true Southern storyteller. This is the story of small town life in Bryson City and what happens to those who live on the other side of the tracks. The Charlotte Observer selected Outbound Train as a summer read, and author Renee Winchester knows something about what she writes because she was born in Bryson City. Uh, she lived in Atlanta for two decades before returning home, and she now lives on a farm in Western North Carolina, where she says she tends a crop of critters and a mountain of medicinal plants. Renee, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited. Yeah, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. I just can't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Uh, and thanks to Jim Hamilton, if you're listening, author of Last Entry. He's the one who's uh, who introduced us here, and he's also a mountain uh, author as well. Exactly. He is amazing. He and I have just been friends for a small amount of time, but I can tell that we could get in the woods and find a whole lot of cool things. <laughs> yeah. He hunts ginseng in the woods. I'm not sure. What do you hunt in the woods? Medicinal plants? Medicinal plants. I'm the kind of person that when I go into the woods, I am always saying, what is this? And what does it do? And how can I use it? And I just have this, I don't know, this curiosity that's insatiable when I'm in the woods and the woods always provide something new for me. 
Yeah. And I, and I loved your book and it's set in Bryson city. And, um, you know, when we, when our kids were younger, we took them to Bryson city, but on the tourist side, we rode the train. I think we stayed at the Frymont Inn. we did some tubing. We, it's just a beautiful area, but, but, uh, tell us a little bit about your connection to the town that you write about in this uh, novel outbound train. Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, thank you for shouting out Frymont Inn. It's still open and has mm-hmm. incredible food and is a wonderful supporter of all authors. They do a lot of events there and it's just amazing. So the Bryson City that I grew up in was completely different than what people see today. Um, you know, we had we had Christmas parades that had horses and dune buggies and people walking and and parade floats that were made on like the big trailers that carry heavy equipment you know nothing fancy but it was fancy for us and the good thing about being in a small town is the same thing that's the bad thing about being in a small town is that things don't change a lot so the the school is still there for the most part. Uh, the elementary school is gone, but a lot of the buildings are still there, and the high school is still there, and the love of football obviously is still there. But the tourists don't get to see that, and hopefully that's what Outbound Train does, is it allows them to kind of peel back that tourist polish that we put on tourist towns and let them see the real people that still live there, you know, because our people, they're still there. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a great book. You just, you dive right into, to this life. Um, and you see it from a side, like you said, that, that if you're a tourist passing through, you're not going to notice, you're not going to feel how much of, uh, and we're going to get into the book and the show here, but how much of, uh, what you describe in the book, this life on the other side of the tracks uh, was something that you were familiar with when you were growing up in Bryson City? Oh, that's an excellent question because there's always existed one side of the track or the other, regardless of whether you live in a town where a train runs through it or not. Uh, you can be on the wrong side of the tracks, even if there isn't a train running through your town. And interestingly enough, when I grew up, and I'm not going to date myself, by the way, I see what you did there. Uh, <laughs> I, we grew up where everybody was poor and we all, even the kids who weren't poor, who we would have considered as rich, I guess you would have considered them as rich. They all hung out with us too. And so, but there was still that difference of the children who were chosen to work a blue collar job and the, and the children who knew they were going to go to college. And that kind of still exists today. Those kids who you know they're going to maybe drop out of school or you know that they're not going to even be able to go to a community college, that's still there. And that's not just uh, exclusive to Bryson City. That's in all towns across America. Yeah, and you find yourself when you're reading this book pulling for the characters and and hoping that they can pull themselves out of this cycle of poverty that's repeating itself. Um, but it's also magnetic, and I'm wondering. Uh, you lived in Atlanta for, I don't know, you said, twenty years, and then you mm-hmm. you you came back. What was, what kind of magnetism of the city drew you back to Bryson City? So I 
I'm a very honest person, and I'll tell you about my first experience at Target in Atlanta. I'm standing in line, and I'm thinking, this is where all the beautiful people live. And they were the Botoxed and beautiful tennis moms with the perfect little Ken and Barbie family. And I thought, oh, my goodness. Uh, which is why I ended up having a wonderful relationship with the last farmer in Roswell, Billy Albertson, who I wrote farming friends and fried bologna sandwiches about, because I needed to have that root. I needed to have something that rooted me in the big city. I still had to touch the dirt, even in the big city. I think that's something that is a seed planted in all of us, regardless of where we live. We've got to touch nature somehow. And so moving back to Bryson City was because my mother was fighting ovarian cancer at the time. And I was just desperate to get back home to be with her and to support her and my dad. And that didn't happen before she passed. It happened a little bit after she passed. But we had to get we had to get home. My husband and I as well. We needed to be back with our our people and our roots and there's a, a lot of sacrifices you make when you move out of the city to where there's limited internet access and no target within an hour and 10 minutes. Some fun facts about you. You are passionate about Appalachian heritage, uh, preserving rare seeds, cultivating endangered plants. Uh, you lead writing workshops. You teach continuing education classes on plant medicine. Um, you say you never met a critter you didn't like or a snake you didn't fear. So uh, are there some snakes in Bryson City? <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> snakes. Yeah. I've tried so hard to overcome the fear of Mr. No-Shoulders. That's what my dad calls them, Mr. No-Shoulders. But I just can't. When I see them, it's just this fear in my heart. And I try. I really have tried. But I'm, I knock on the door and I say to my husband, uh, there's a snake out there. and You need to do something. And, of course, he relocates them. And I'm like, that's not really what I meant. <laughs> Yeah. Well, part, part, part of my time is spent in the high country in Watauga County and I do some fly fishing and every now and then a snake will slip through my legs when I'm in the water or be next to me on the bank. And I'm like you, I want to, <laughs> I want to get out of there. But uh, another fun confession, um, there's a, the, the, the young uh, girls in this book, um, you know, they're in high school and there's this principal who uh, everyone's drawn to. He's, you know, he's, he's the cool well-dressed, good-looking principal. You had a fun confession you share with me that, uh, you know, about the principal in your school when you were in high school. I'm telling you, he was amazing. Everyone was in love with him and, I mean, openly in love with him. We just hadn't, we'd never seen, I don't want to sound completely redneck, but I don't think we had seen very many men who weren't in camouflage basically all the time <laughs> or blue jeans. And so when he comes in with this polyester suit and we were just like, oh my word, because the principal we had had before, he needed to retire. And <laughs> so this young, this young gentleman with the gold necklace and Men never wore necklaces. The only jewelry they ever wore would, was a wedding band. And so he was very taboo in small town Bryson City. I He was something else. 
Yeah, you said he had wavy hair, had that look about him. You, you say you wish your mother were still alive because you could ask her what the ladies in town really thought about him. <laughs> I know, because yeah. they knew he would. They, I think they knew the exact moment he came into town. <laughs> okay, so before we get into the covers here, let's talk about the book cover itself of Outbound Train. Uh, I love the cover. So I have a wonderful editor, Eva, and she asked me to send her some photos of what I would like. And as you know, authors very rarely have any input on the cover. We just kind of pray for the best. And so I gave her some photos of what I thought would be wonderful. And she submitted this to me. And I said, it's it's perfect. It's absolutely beyond anything I could have ever hoped for because so many people, regardless of Bryson City, regardless of where you've lived, if you've lived in rural America beside a train track, this is your this is your photo. This is your image. Yeah, and just to share with there will be a picture of this in the show notes, but as it's almost as if you're and people have done this before, you stand in the middle of the train track and you look down the tracks. And basically it's like looking out uh uh, on on the sea. I mean, eventually the horizon <laughs> is out there, but it's just a long, long set of tracks. But off to the side are the mountains and you got a little crossing, you know, station there. So uh, just very rural, which is essentially what you grew up in, a rural area of North Carolina. Exactly. And what I wanted to cover, and I think it adequately conveys the message, is what is on the other side of the tracks. And where are these tracks going to take me? Because both mother and daughter want the same thing. They just don't realize that. And I think we often don't realize that with our own parents, is that we probably wanted the same thing at the same time in our lives. And the cover, I think, is just amazing that you are walking down the tracks and where are they going to lead me? And in both cases, in Carol Ann and in Barbara's case, those tracks were the way to get out of poverty. Yeah, those were uh, sort of the way out, outbound train. So, all right, that's a good segue. You ready to get under the covers? I'm ready. Hey listeners, a special thanks here to the Red Bud Writing Project, our episode sponsor. They offer creative writing classes in fiction, memoir, and more to adults. They're located in Raleigh and use the uh, immediate community spaces around the Triangle, but due to the pandemic, all their classes are meeting online for the foreseeable future. Their classes include a workshop component, and they take a craft-based approach to learning writing. They offer advice, prompts, and lessons. They have a good time doing it, so if you'd like to learn more, check out redbudwriting.org. And finally, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. All right, so we're, we're here talking about uh, the novel Outbound Train uh, with Renee Winchester. Renee, early in the book, we find out that uh, Barbara Parker has plans to leave Bryson City. She's eight, 18 years old. 
She's got a future ahead of her. She wants to get out of, out of this town that, um, you know, she's ready to move on. But then something happens the night of the championship football game that the Bryson City team wins and returns triumphant to town. What happened to Barbara Parker that evening? So Barbara Parker, as most of us are when we're 17, 18 years old, we've got our whole life planned out. We're we're ready to leave home, fly the coop, and, and just get on, especially Barbara's case. And she's supposed to meet a friend after the football game. And what ultimately happens is the friend doesn't show. And Barbara's walking the tracks at night and someone slips up behind her and ultimately assaults her and rapes her. And that is, um, that is a secret that she has been keeping from her daughter, Carol Ann. I think you told me that that was a difficult thing for you to write about, but that you felt like you had to include it because without it, the story wouldn't be complete. It was a horrible thing to write about, and I tried not to write about it at all. I actually, in the early stages of the novel, chapter two was the beginning, and it just didn't flow. And readers pay careful attention to that. They know when something isn't right, and they know when an author's trying to force something. And the more I wrote, the more that story and what happened to Barbara kept nagging me and I just had to just sit down one day with Carol Ann's character and say okay I know I promised to tell your story but in order to tell it completely I need to tell readers what happened to to Barbara and it was a horrible thing to have to write I cried through most of it um, but it had to be told it had you have to be authentic and I think readers will appreciate that. Yeah, and then there's a third main character in this book, uh, Granny Perlene. She is Barbara Parker's mother. She's the grandmother of Carol Ann Parker. And uh, there was this great scene early in the book I, I loved where we saw a little bit about uh, the sturdiness and steadfastness and sort of independentness uh, that uh, pervades Granny Perlene. She is taking uh, Carol Ann to church, and the deacons aren't uh, – you know, being very welcoming and uh, are saying that she's going to have to confess her sins to the congregation. Now, she's pregnant by rape, of course, but they're looking at it this way. And Perling <laughs> looks, uh, you know, at them and said, uh, who died and made y'all judge? And uh, she <laughs> tucks her purse beneath her arm, grabs uh, Barbara Parker's hand and says, you will not uh, do that at all. No, ma'am, you must certainly, you will not. Your sins are between you and God, not you, God, and them. And then she goes on to chastise some of the deacons. And we just kind of get off with a good start. And I'm just curious, were there any people in your lives growing up that uh, sort of formed, uh, you know, a foundation for this character, Granny Perlene? You know, that is an excellent question. And when I was writing it, I didn't necessarily base it on, anyone and then afterwards I realized oh my word that really was my grandmother and my mother when pushed to the edge or the extreme you know they were non-confrontational until you know until someone did something like that and then it it is who died and made you judge I mean who is without sin 
cast the first stone. And a lot of Granny Pearlene is that make-do woman, the taking scraps of nothing and making them into something. And that was out of necessity growing up in the rural South. Yeah, and this is Southern fiction. So your setting is Bryson City. Uh, You're in the mountains, but you're also uh, in a community that's being supported uh, by textiles at that time. And uh, everybody who was uh, struggling uh, to make ends meet, you know, was working uh, in the factories. And that's one of the things that you bring into the book. And I'm just, uh, as you were growing up, were, were the factories a big part of life in that part of the uh, state? So the factories were a big part of life. And as you know, since you visited Bryson City, most of the area is owned by the government because it's, you know, the national park is here. So that really limits the amount of employability that the residents have. And so we had an industrial park, which that's where one of the manufacturing plants were. The other one was on towards Schoolhouse Hill. We had more than one. And basically that's where you worked if you lived here. My aunt worked there. My mother did not. My Grandmother worked at the hospital, but before she worked, when I was an adult, but when I was a young child, she worked at a plant called Van Ralt, which was owned by a New York City company. They had multiple plants in many locations, and they made uh, gloves and slips and socks. We also had the Buster Brown plant here. So that was a lot of, we had the polyester payday here. That is how men and women earned their keep. And I think you said uh, to me that the the Parker women would have been smiling because recently you undertook a project in connection with COVID-19 where you're actually putting some of that uh, textile know-how to work with sewing masks. Right. I just believe that the make-do spirit of the Parker women are inside all of us because right now, during this time, we've had to make do. We've not had everything that we wanted, but we have somehow made a way to have everything that we need. And you see across America, everywhere, people are sewing their own masks. If you can't find elastic, they're finding other ways of, you know, using string or ribbon or whatever you have on hand. And that make do spirit is inside of all of us. All right, we got a great read here that's going to give us uh, a flavor for the town. Um, it's at the beginning of the book. Uh, how about if you would read that for us and then we'll talk some more. I will be happy to. The people of Bryson City didn't need an alarm clock to signal the start of another day. Norfolk Southern Railroad provided one each morning. Three engines passed through town the midnight 3.30 and 5.30 rails. In the darkness, the train sounded alike, a rhythmic clack of steel against steel, the roar increasing as each engine pushed through the darkness, followed by the sound of a whistle piercing the night, blowing two short toots, then one longer howl, warning anyone who might be out after dark, and there weren't many, to clear the tracks. Beneath a blanket of darkness, Bryson City seemed peaceful. Some mill town occupants slumbered in houses they rented but would never own outright. 
Others slept in trailers set up on blocks with wheels removed and sold for extra money. Hardworking people slept soundly until the first train clacked into town. Then they stirred, but not to the point of fully waking. They continued this half-sleep while the second train sounded its horn until finally their train, the 5.30, sounded. The 5.30, whose engineer kindly held the chain longer than the two previous men, converted the warning whistle into a town-wide wake-up call. A long, wake-the-dead scream for those who were so dog-tired they could barely face the morning. It was then that the good people of Bryson City arose and blindly measured three scoops of JFG coffee for their machines. Some lit a cigarette and sat hypnotized as pitch-black coffee sprang to life in the percolator bulb. They removed bits of tobacco from the tips of their tongues while the aroma of liquid sunshine escaped through the cracks in the walls. A new day dawned, and some folk, but not many, dreamed of life beyond the one-stop sign town. So, Renee, did you hear uh, a lot of train whistles when you were growing up? I did hear a lot of train whistles when I was growing up. Uh, Not at three in the morning because I sleep very soundly. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And are the trains still prevalent in the area? So, the trains are still prevalent. We call them the tourist train. And so the train that you ride is the exact same train on the same track that's mentioned in Outbound Train. And it actually travels past where the trailer park once was. They just removed those trailers recently. Now, is that the track that goes up past Fontana Lake and So it depends on which way you're traveling. If you're traveling from Bryson City to Fontana, then you're not passing the trailers. If you're traveling from Bryson City to Dillsboro, then you're going to pass the area where the trailers were. Well, I suppose that makes sense because you're not heading out except into the wilderness if you're going to Fontana. (laughs) You might be heading towards civilization if you're going toward Dillsboro. Exactly. Um, well, and and I'm thinking about this, uh, you know, the title outbound train, the train tracks being by the tracks, this story, it has this theme of wanting to leave, to move on, to make something of your life. But am I right that this book is also just as much about making do as it is moving on? Absolutely. It is about making do because we can't all the time get away from our circumstance. We may want to, we may work very hard, but there are always outside influences that sometimes keep us where we are instead of where we want to be. So we do have to make do uh, in in Barbara's case. And of course, I don't want to give away the, the ending, but all of the women basically want the same thing. And it's not necessarily to leave. They think that's what they want but they just want life to be a little bit easier and not so hard. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's great. Let's talk a little bit about the writing life for a second. Uh, talk about uh, this process of writing everything by hand first and and then going to the computer. I don't know what's wrong with me. That's exactly what I do. And I, I have tried so hard not to, i truly have, but there's just something that has to happen. It has to flow through my pen onto the page. And then when I'm typing it out from the notebook onto the computer, 
then another little trinket of magic happens and sometimes new ideas will will pop in while I'm typing that in it just as long as the story gets told I guess it really doesn't matter what your process is if you're a writer you know I don't outline I have a generalized at the beginning of every chapter I say this is what's going to happen in the chapter this is who it's going to be this is what action we're going to have and this is how we're going to move the story along I don't think I could do that effectively with an outline it's more of a each chapter has its own method to move the story along. Yeah, there's a, this is a character driven book and you really get uh, attached to the characters. Uh, I mean, there's a section in the book where Granny Perlene is uh, telling the young girls what they need to be careful about. And it's uh, what she calls men with tallywhackers. And uh, she's, uh, you know, she's just got that uh, way of speaking plain truth. And, uh, so it's nice to see all these different characters that you bring to life. But you said to me that you got stuck at one point in writing this and you got some good advice that related to those characters. What was that? So the best thing that an author can have is a friend that's immensely more successful than you are. And I have been blessed to have Terry Kay in my life. And he, for those who don't know him, he is one of the most beloved authors in Georgia, in the state of Georgia. I met him early, very early in my writing career when I, I didn't know what I was doing. And, but I confided in him. He has that, that magnetism that you do want to confide in him. And I said, I'm stuck. And he said, well, you know what your problem is? You're trying to force those characters to do what you want. And you don't need to do that. Your job is to watch them and report what they're doing. And I thought about that. And when I got home, I realized I was 100% guilty of, yes, I am going to sit down. And today, I'm going to make Carol Ann do what I want. And that's kind of like trying to make Granny Pearlene do what I wanted. That didn't work out. Uh, as I said, she in the beginning had her own chapter. It was a three person narrative and she was just stealing the show so I did have to rein her in but I absolutely in that particular scene I observed everything that happened and just wrote what everyone said yeah I think that's great advice you got three strong characters here different generations uh, there's no way that you can control them <laughs> they're going to have their own personalities they're going to go their certain ways um so I know you had a good time writing those characters. What what do you hope uh, that readers take away from this book, Renee? I really hope, if I've done my job well, I hope that they will kind of open their minds to a new type of Southern fiction that's kind of gone away with all of the commercial fiction. I don't write stereotypes. We're We're not going to have any meth heads in my books and I, yes meth is very prevalent in Appalachia and in in southern states but it's prevalent everywhere I want to write more than anything a story that doesn't have stereotypes that you can relate to the characters that you know them you might be them uh, you might have a granny Perlene in your life you might have a secret that you aren't sharing with your 
daughter. You might be the daughter that wants to get away. And that's what I hope that I have accomplished is to write something that every reader can relate to on some level. That's great. So one final question. Uh, why do you write, Renee? Oh, so I've got to tell you about Brenda McLean, who wrote One Good Mama Bone. And we were talking the other day and, and we were talking about why do we write? Why are we writing during COVID when it's so impossibly difficult to sell anything? And why are we doing that? And we're doing it because it comes natural. It's just like breathing. Asking me not to write is to ask me to hold my breath and survive. And I can't. I've tried not to write. And that's basically when the characters start stalking me. That's the fun part of that advice Terry Kay said, you know, stalk your characters. And so then when I'm like, okay, I'm not going to write. I, I can't, I can't write. Then they come to me and they start whispering. And so we do have that kind of relationship between the characters I write and the characters I observe and the ones that come whispering to me. Well, Renee, it was, a, it was really nice to be able to read your book. I really enjoyed it. And uh, listeners, there's going to be information in the show notes about uh, the book, some more information about Renee Winchester, uh, some links, uh, the photograph that we've been talking about that's on the cover of the book. Um, Renee, I wish we had more time, but we don't. I want to thank you for being a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. Thank you so very much. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to their written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.